With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on this Friday on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, how authorities are working to keep fruit flies manageable after a tough 2023, and considerations for applying biologicals in vineyards. But to start off the day, the Farm Bill may take a look at foreign ownership of farmland, but there may be some political hurdles. David Geiger has this report. Foreign ownership of farmland is a concern, with some states taking an active role. 3.1% of privately held farmland has foreign ownership, and there is a question of whether it's a national or state-level issue. Director of the Ag Law Center, Harrison Pittman, says it will be both. And has been for a long time. Um, and, you know, those lines are kind of shifting around. States have certainly become more active uh, from a historical perspective than than they have been in, in recent decades, but there are a number of federal proposals. A couple of states have already taken action when it comes to prohibiting foreign ownership of farmland. Pittman points to a Syngenta plot in Arkansas. With the company owned by ChemChina, it faced action by the state. Not all these state laws are, are the same. I don't think you could even describe them as having a uniformity. Um, and interestingly, Arkansas was a state that had neither a grandfather clause uh, and it didn't have a research exception, which a lot of these laws do. Pittman says it is likely foreign ownership of farmland will be addressed in the Farm Bill, but it will be difficult to find a political consensus. A lot of these depend on these proposals would depend on USDA taking a much more active role. But to do that, they're going to need a lot of resources and they're going to have to add a lot of people, which is money. And so you may have people that think it's a terrific idea, but they may not think it's a terrific idea at the same time to expand USDA in that way. In Des Moines, Iowa, I'm David Geiger. How many bushels of grains and oil seeds are being stored across the country? In just a few hours, USDA will give us a better idea about that. Gary Crawford has more. This Friday, the USDA will not only release final production numbers for this past season's major crops like corn and soybeans, but also will come out with its new look at grain stocks. That stocks report will provide the current estimate of the uh, amount of on and off farm stocks for all of the grains and oil seeds. The amount of stocks as of December 1st. So USDA Outlook Chairman Mark Jekinowski says. In some sense, that can be viewed as our um, beginning stocks. You know, those volume of commodities that were harvested this fall that went into storage and will be marketed over the rest of the, uh, the course of the marketing year. Mark's Outlook Group will then be forecasting how that marketing will go for the various crops, including forecasts for such things as exports and prices. All of this information to be released this Friday noon Eastern Time. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Don't forget if you've missed our morning shows or just need to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have the statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour, and it's available on both Apple and Android devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's national spotlight, the National Sunflower Association's 46th annual Sunflower Research Forum was held Wednesday in Fargo, North Dakota. Well, you know, our attendance is very good. I mean, we've got representatives that are, you know, not only producers, but researchers, uh, folks with USDA and others. 
And um, there's a lot of good work going on with sunflower. I mean, we're, we're, we're making some headway on disease, uh, looking for some alternatives for insecticides, things like that. And just overall, just a really good conference so far. That's John Sandbachen, Executive Director of the National Sunflower Association. Research topics covered everything from diseases, insects, weed control, blackbirds, and more. Federal funding plays a vital role in making research possible, and Sandbachen is watching Capitol Hill for the latest developments on USDA's appropriations bill and then the farm bill debate. Well, you know, the latest that I have heard is, you know, the appropriation bill for agriculture is going to be, has uh, a deadline of January 19th to be funded for FY24. Um, you know, hopefully that, that, that's going to get taken care of here in the next in the next few days here because obviously the window is really tight. For the farm bill, the latest that I've heard is that they're going to probably try to introduce a, a farm bill in the House in March, uh, which I, I know the goal of our group and others is that we'd like to get that done before the election season starts. You know, otherwise it's going to be really difficult to get a farm bill passed because obviously a lot of things you know go into that but you know we're, our hope is that they're going to get it done early here and, and research can be a large part of it. On the topic of international trade, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai's three-day India visit starting January 12th and USDA's Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs Alexis Taylor is also scheduled to be in India on an agribusiness trade mission from April 22nd to the 25th. India typically imports around 250,000 metric tons of sunflower oil per month mainly from Russia, Ukraine, Argentina, and Turkey. Sunbakken sees potential with India as a possible customer for U.S. supplies. You know, honestly, when you look at, at that market and its location, logistically, the Russians and the Ukrainians are in a better position to supply that. And, you know, that's why our, our main export markets are Canada and Mexico. I mean, you know, definitely here in North America, we, we are the, the leader. And it's one of those things that it's it just a little bit more difficult for us to get product there because they're very price conscious. They're looking for the cheapest priced oil and, you know, U.S. is never going to be in that position. So, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we, we probably wouldn't even, you know, attempt. Looking to the year ahead, the Association's Research Committee is setting its priorities for the year during the forum. We'll be looking at the different research proposals we have, and I think, you know, our, our goal is going to be to continue the research that we have to try to make the crop more profitable for producers, find some solutions to these problems that, that we do face, and, you know, just overall make, make sunflower a, a better crop to have in the rotation. And so the research is our, our number one focus, and our, our president has always said that there's no better way to spend checkoff dollars or industry dollars is on our research, because if, if we, we don't have the yield, we don't have the quality of a product, we're not going to have any customers and that's why it's really key for us. The Sunflower Research Forum is an annual event designed to learn about research, promote discussion, and stimulate creative thinking. Zachary Idle is a new Ph.D. student at North Dakota State University studying plant pathology. As part of his research work, Idle conducted a rust survey of sunflower fields across the northern Great Plains this past summer. I'm new to the sunflower rust scene, but uh, my findings are that in South Dakota, eight out of eight fields had rust, and in North Dakota, uh, 41 out of 43 fields had rust, and my advisor, Sam Arkell, uh, he says that's pretty high prevalence, and uh, one thing that I would like to point out is although you could find rust in all of the fields, I would say in the southern and western parts of North Dakota, it was quite uh, quite a bit more severe, and there were, uh, was starting to spread to the upper uh, leaves of the sunflowers. The higher incidence of rust may have been related to climate conditions in the growing season. I would tend to think that, uh, now I can't say this for absolute certainty, because uh, I don't know the exact data, but perhaps um, southern 
in western North Dakota actually maybe got more rain or there was more of a dew period. You know, there's more there's more sunflower production in those areas of North Dakota. So perhaps because of the overwintering of uh, rust in the telia stage, then there was more of a initial inoculum. And then because it, it's also warmer in the uh, southern part of North Dakota, there was more uh, secondary infection cycles of rust. So that would lead to uh, higher severity in those parts of the state. Adel plans to continue his research on the topic this growing season. Well, in 2024, I hope to do another survey, perhaps broader, but we'll see what happens. And uh, for right now, I am recovering the samples that I took in uh, North Dakota and South Dakota, uh, also Nebraska and Wisconsin, uh, done by uh, others, uh, my collaborators. And from there, then I hope to do a single pustule isolate creation and then test that on differentials or uh, new genes, uh, new rust-resistant genes to, to race these uh, different uh, single pustule isolates of rust. The pathogen that causes sunflower rust is specific to sunflower and cannot spread to other crops. In extreme cases, yield losses of over 80% have been reported. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, Mexico's government recently announced the continuation of a policy beneficial to American livestock producers. U.S. Meat Export Federation's John Harris has more. Pork, beef, and poultry from all eligible suppliers will continue to enter Mexico duty-free through the end of this year. Aaron Bohr, U.S. Meat Export Federation Vice President of Economic Analysis, has more details. So if we recall back to May of 2022 and the inflationary reduction efforts by several countries, that's when the Mexican government first implemented zero tariffs on all imports of beef, pork, and poultry. Not completely unheard of because Mexico had previously introduced temporary tariff-free quotas for import. Similar to the U.S., inflation in general has been coming down. So we kind of had a sense that they may go ahead and let that temporary tariff exemption expire at the end of 2023. But they extended it again through the end of 2024. And so now it's kind of become a longer-term policy. Bohr explains how this has affected competition in the largest destination for U.S. pork. The U.S. and Canada are at zero duty through NAFTA and USMCA. So the zero tariff benefits were really going on the pork side to Europe. And then with Brazil beginning shipments in February of 2023, Brazil was also benefiting. Those exports from Brazil had ticked up above 5,000 metric tons a month. But then in late November, a Mexican court actually halted the access for Brazil related to their sanitary access. So the court case has resulted in at least a temporary suspension of Brazilian pork entering Mexico. 90% of our exports are chilled and difficult for Brazil to compete head on. So our share of total exports of pork to Mexico actually increased from the prior two years to 84%. So that Brazilian product that is made in Rhodes, they were taking market share from Canada and Brazil took share from Europe. For more, please visit USMEF.org. For the U.S. Meat Export Federation, I'm John Harris. In other livestock news, the American Lamb Board has announced targeted grazing workshops. Rapid development of utility-scale solar farms across the country has stimulated significant need for sheep grazing as a means of vegetation management. 
There are also increasing opportunities for sheep grazing contracts in wildfire-prone areas and vineyards. Sheep grazing helps to eliminate dried plants that might otherwise become wildfire fuel, and grazing in vineyards and other areas helps clear weeds while reducing or eliminating herbicide use. These paid grazing contracts present tremendous opportunity for growth of the American sheep flock. While improving the availability and price competitiveness of American lamb and reducing greenhouse gas emissions through green energy production and biological vegetation management. These grazing opportunities offer current and emerging sheep producers the opportunity to increase their profitability and grow flock numbers. Training is needed to ensure sheep producers are prepared to take advantage of these grazing contract opportunities. ALB's grazing workshops are designed to outline new and existing opportunities through targeted grazing across the United States, including fire suppression, vineyards, and solar grazing. Producers who attend will have an opportunity to learn about the in-depth process of using sheep to provide a grazing service, from animal performance to contracts and business setup. The goal is to provide grazers with the tools to be successful service providers and profitable shepherds. Find more information at AmericanLamb.com. This is the Acunet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. Authorities are working to prevent another troubling year for invasive fruit fly detections. Director of Government and Public Policy for the California Fresh Food Association, Adam Borchard, described the ongoing mitigation efforts. CDFA has been working very closely with the United States Department of Agriculture and the Federal Aviation Administration on increasing detections at ports of entry, not just at ports like at Long Beach and Los Angeles, but also at airports as well. And it's a major concern. I mean, we've seen fruit flies before in California, but we're seeing new species such as the Tau and the Queensland. Fortunately for now, these detections have largely been in non-agricultural residential areas, and currently the state is conducting eradication and quarantine efforts in 15 counties across California, primarily in Southern California, but also in the San Francisco Bay Area and in Sacramento County. The Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer's latest report reveals that U.S. farmers' inflation concerns have eased with a stable overall producer sentiment. In December, the barometer recorded a reading of 114, only one point lower than November. Notably, farmers' inflation expectations for the upcoming year were significantly lower than the previous year for 2023. The Farm Financial Performance Index saw a two-point increase in December, reflecting ongoing positive trends. Concerns about lower prices for crops and livestock increased to 26% by December, and rising interest rates became a notable worry for 24% of farmers surveyed. 70% of growers anticipate inflation in 2024 to be less than 4%, a decrease from the 50%, expecting 6% or higher inflation a year ago. The Risk Management Education Partnerships Program from USDA aims to help underserved, small-scale, and organic farmers learn more about crop insurance options. USDA Risk Management Agency Administrator Marsha Bunger describes the kinds of groups that might apply for the program. If you are a egg-related organization, nonprofit that is interested in helping those in your community with understanding crop insurance, what kinds of policies there are, what's necessary many times to um, have a policy. Much like whole farm, microfarm, you're required to have a pretty extensive amount of bookkeeping, um, record keeping. And so 
many times the partnership monies are given to those types of organizations that are providing that kind of training to those in their communities. Using biological materials in vineyards will need some considerations when also using synthetic materials. Cooperative Extension Specialist in Plant Pathology, Keep Eskelin, explained what growers will want to keep in mind to get the most efficacy out of their programs. Synthetics are the fungicides. That means they kill the fungi. If you are applying synthetics with the trichoderma-based product, which is a fungi, that will cancel out. So if you want to go to see with the synthetic, we have options, go with the synthetic. If you want to go organic, biocontrol, go with the biocontrol. Plus, there are some biocontrol agents, some of them are trichoderma-based, some of them which are the fungi, some of them are the bacteria, which serenate, yeah, you mentioned that, and Bacillus valazensis, we also identify some of others. Those are the bacteria. Those two beneficials have different mode of action. Registration is still open for the Unified Wine and Grape Symposium coming up January 23rd through the 25th in Sacramento. Hosted by the American Society for Enology and Viticulture and the California Association of Wine Grape Growers, the Unified Wine and Grape Symposium is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. The program includes relevant sessions designed to keep the grape and wine industry updated on the latest innovations, emerging trends, and best practices needed for future planning and important business decisions. Educational sessions will cover topics such as artificial intelligence, regenerative agriculture, growing in extreme weather, and more. Over 650 exhibitors will also be featured during the two-day trade show on the 24th and 25th. A comprehensive list and breakdown of sessions and information on how to register is available at unifiedsymposium.org. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. We're eating and growing fewer apricots in the U.S. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. Data from USDA's Economic Research Service shows U.S. apricot production is declining significantly. The production has been decreasing since the 1990s in response to falling U.S. consumption, especially for processed apricots. Commercial production is concentrated on the West Coast, with California representing 90% of apricot production in 2023. The U.S. apricot industry has experienced a long-term downward trend in bearing acreage, falling 62% over the last 20 years. Growing competition from imports of processed apricot products and a general increase in consumption for all fruit have encouraged growers to divert more of their acreage to higher-valued commodities, resulting in fewer bearing acres of apricots and shifts in use. The downward trend in production has coincided with a decrease in the share of apricots used in the processing market. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Cheesemongers value the string of mozzarella and the squeak of a fresh cheese curd. But how can processors maintain that freshness and quality so that customers both near and far can enjoy the same experience? These are some of the questions the Center for Dairy Research at the University of Wisconsin is setting out to answer, says CDR Director John Lucy. Mozzarella is still very important. Obviously, it's the largest cheese-produced uh, variety here in the U.S. And we continue to look at ways to control the functionality of it and add new kind of measures to how to control it in terms of functionality and performance. We have students working on what, how, what is blistering and how why does it form. You'd, you'd think that we'd be very on top of that. We know a lot about browning and blistering and things like cheeses like mozzarella, but this is a deeper dive into the kind of material science behind something like blistering. And we also are looking 
looking at fresh uh, cheese curds, squeaky cheese curds, and why is it so squeaky? And recording the sounds of it, and working with the the, the audiology department here that record music and sounds, and they're helping us analyze that and figure out what is it about early cheese that's just been made that really is squeaky, and why does it lose the squeak? The hope is to find how to keep cheese curds fresh and squeaky the last more than a few days. We're on trying to understand the science of it with the hope that maybe we can make something that lasts longer and then we can sell it across the U.S. And over the last five or ten years, we've done a lot of work on helping extend the shelf life of cheese, mainly for an export purposes here. So we know that we're exporting maybe about five or six percent of our cheese f- from the U.S., but over the next 10 or 20 years, we'd like to really increase that percentage of our cheese that we can uh, sell to the world. And so we have studied all kinds of cheese varieties that are targets, are potential ones for export, including mozzarella and cream cheese and cheddar for processing. And we've done all kinds of research projects to kind of say, pretty good for maybe for mozzarella for two months, but could we make it six months? Could we make it eight months that it still melts, shreds, etc.? The effort is to help companies with a market for cheese find ways to improve the performance of cheese products. Why do so many of us fail to keep our New Year's resolutions to start exercising regularly? Gary Crawford has an expert with the answer. Well, it may be a little late for this, but hey, the year is still young. I may not be, but the year is still young, so here we go. And at this time of year, so many of us make resolutions about starting up or resuming exercise programs. Sales of exercise equipment go up quite a bit this time of year. People seem at least temporarily motivated to get moving, often plunging headlong into extreme programs that end up backfiring. But before we uh, get that far, some advice from Rutgers University Extension nutrition and health expert Karen Inslee. She says, if you haven't exercised in years or ever, don't check out the shoes and the clothes and the machines and all before you check out yourself. You need to make sure before you start any program that you have had a good medical physical so you know the state of your own health and then if you're doing it on your own there's a lot of self-help information out there whether you go to a USDA site or some of the other governmental sites there are you know helpful aids to do that. Next, once you are cleared by the doctor to start working out or walking or running or whatever, Karen Inslee says the worst thing you can do is overdo right off the bat. Don't want to start off doing too many repetitions in any one exercise because you overwork the body, it's going to be sore. And you don't want to put yourself in a place where you get over sore and then have some problems. What usually happens is we get so sore or we get hurt or something, and then we have to stop for a few days, and all of a sudden we look around and we've stopped for weeks or months or longer. Inslee says in the case of most people, the no pain, no gain thing, that's a myth. Better to go slow, build up, and not to suffer so much. For weight loss, for instance, walking still the best way to start. Walking is wonderful. Get yourself a pedometer and start walking. And the same thing with walking. You know, public health says 10,000 steps a day, which is about five and a half miles. You're not going to start with that. You're going to start with going around the block two, three times or walking a quarter mile out and back, which is would be a total of like a half mile. And then you add a little bit more to it. 
So you work yourself up. Same with exercise machines. If you hit them too hard, too fast, it raises the chances that those machines are going to be gathering dust over in the corner, and you'll be gathering dust on the couch. But Karen Inslee says you don't need to invest a lot of money in machines to start with. Now, yes, it is the dead of winter, very cold in some areas, but some places have mall walking programs, that sort of thing. But Karen says whatever you do, wherever you do it, start slow, build up, enjoy, and you'll up the chances of staying on that exercise program and, of course, up the chances of a better, healthier life. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. What does the U.S. Drought Monitor map look like as the new year is now here? Rod Bain tells us. What are some of the trends revealed in the first U.S. Drought Monitor of 2024? USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey takes a look at drought coverage for the period ending January 2nd and compares it to five weeks earlier. When we started the month of December, we had 36% of the lower 48 states experiencing drought. That number has dropped modestly to 33% by the time we reached the first map of the 2024 year. Within the two highest drought categories, extreme and exceptional, or D3 and D4. We saw a drop from eight to 6% during that same five week period between November 28th and January 2nd. We also saw approximately a halving of the D4 category, exceptional drought, from just over 2% to just over 1%. Rippey says, although the change overall in drought coverage shows improvement. We have seen significant improvement from the central Gulf Coast, places like southern Louisiana, extending northeastward into the mid-Atlantic. We saw a series of significant storms in December there, really chipping away at the dryness and drought in that region. We also saw substantial precipitation across parts of the plains into the upper Midwest. A third area that has done better in recent weeks is the Pacific Northwest. But that's a pretty small geographic area and really stops pretty much at the Cascades. We haven't seen much improvement working inland. There are still some areas of the nation recording deteriorating drought conditions. Some deteriorating conditions across the northern Rockies and environs starting to turn a bit drier there, probably a sign of the developing and strengthening El Nino there. And at the same time, we've also seen drying conditions from the Mid-South into parts of the lower Midwest. With the declining drought coverage in net nationwide, Rippey says this is also reflected in crops and commodities covered in drought. Winter wheat, hay, and cattle in drought coverage all saw month-over-month decreases to usher in the new year. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Chuck Zimmerman has today's featured interview. I'm at the Beltwide Cotton Conferences and I have with me here Hank Jones. First of all, Hank, what do you do? I'm an independent ag consultant. I'm located in Winsboro, Louisiana. Um, Primarily check cotton in Louisiana, what little there is left, and check rice, soybeans, corn, a little bit of wheat. Well, we're in the first part of the uh, program here with the Cotton Consultants Conference. Um, you uh, have moderated that for us here today. And tell us, first of all, what's the purpose of having a Cotton Consultants Conference? Well, let me begin by thanking the National Cotton Council for finding it important to include consultants as part of the industry. Uh, they started this conference, uh, the Consultants Conference, several years ago, uh, given uh, we as consultants in our, our group uh, an opportunity to gather and to set a program that we can come together from all across the cotton belt and it gives us an opportunity to get the 
I say the best of the best, uh, the best scientists, the best industry folks to come in here um, and basically talk about the topics that we'd like for them to talk about. You have a real mix here of um, different companies that are involved in cotton seed or other kinds of uh, inputs for uh, growing cotton. Uh, tell us a, bit, a little bit about um, some of the ones you maybe heard today that you thought were interesting. Well, I'll back up and say we, we form our program with a committee, uh, with consultants across America, and we all kind of have a consensus about uh, what topics we need to have covered. And, and one of the main topics that we really wanted to address this year was cottonseed varieties. Uh, it seems like oftentimes uh, varieties get to us, they get dropped in our fields, and we're left to figure them out uh, because some of them are rushed to market so fast that a lot of agronomic data isn't provided to us. So we wanted to give some of the, the main cotton varieties, uh, cotton variety companies that would accept our invitation a chance to uh, expand upon what they know about their new varieties and kind of give us at least a, uh, a leg up on what to expect with some of these varieties that we're going to be looking at in the future. You also uh, had uh, at least one session here. It tri- tried to pack a lot into a short one on, on just what we would call precision ag, which involved managing a lot of data, for example. That, I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, we tried to cover a wide range of topics, and, and certainly we want to stay current and certainly want to address topics that are going to provide value to us and our customers, but to also give us a glance at what we're going to be looking at in the future. So whether it be record-keeping, imagery, yield data, there's a litany of things that comprise this whole precision ag um, universe and so we have to tiptoe into it because like i said there's entire conferences dedicated to precision ag but just to kind of get it out there to everybody in the room that hey these are the tools that are available these things may help us make better decisions and we had a session today about the john deere sea and spray system that's some of the most cutting edge technology that we're working with right now but even how that may impact um our communications with some of the regulatory agencies that, hey, look at what we're doing with this. We're able to reduce pesticide use using this new technology. And we've got records now. We can write prescriptions about where products actually go and where they don't go. And so I think it tells a pretty good story going forward for us that we can integrate these things into our practices to help farmers. Well, you're going to close out today uh, with a panel on with Thrive On, which uh, Let's see, that got approval last, just last year. Commercial right? approval last year. And we had, most of us in the room as consultants have probably been looking at it in, in some way or another through plots or regulated plots, steward, stewarded plots, maybe the last three years. And so some of us were familiar with it. But uh, those of us that have had a chance to um, view it in the fields, form an opinion after two or three years with it, along with some university scientists, we kind of want to make this a, an annual event. We've had it um, with consultants for two years. The first year, we mainly had university folks involved in the panel. Um, but I think it's something that's we can kind of chronicle the history early on and kind of see how this fits, where it doesn't fit. Talk to people around the Cotton Belt about you know what the value of it is because uh, I think it's going to mean different things to different pla- people in different places. And so what it may mean to us in the Mid-South may not be the same as what it means to somebody in West Texas. So I think that it gives us an opportunity just to kind of talk. 
I know there's a little bit more to the conference than just today because you'll finish tomorrow. Uh, Anything uh, you'd like to say about what uh, we'll be looking at in day two? We're going to address some regulatory issues, uh, Endangered Species Act. Uh, We've got um, some people from uh, Compliance Services International. Uh, They work with EPA and, um, and also from the Office of Pesticide Management. Uh, somebody's going to come to us and speak, uh, you know, basically about giving us an update about the Endangered Species Act, what that means to farming right now. That's been a you know, hot topic for us here lately. And we're just going to just touch our phone nematodes and some other on-farm things after that. So, like I said, tomorrow's kind of um, just going to kind of touch on several topics like we did today. Well, uh, it sounds like, from what I've heard, we have a great uh group here today for this conference this year i'm very happy usually when we have it in texas we get a big crowd and so uh, i think i was told i think a little over 800 registered they sold out the omni hotel and so they had to block another block of rooms at another neighboring hotel uh that's good news and so obviously there's optimism about the cotton industry uh we just need prices to go up and uh we need to keep on making good yields All right, well, thank you very much for the consultants to kick this whole thing off here. Here at the Beltwide Cotton Conferences, I'm Chuck Zimmerman. Thank you again to Chuck Zimmerman. We will be right back. You are listening to the AgNet NewsHour. Now for more news. Despite millions of dollars to help out, some farmers struggle to get access to land. David Geiger has this report. Farmland values continue to increase nationwide, creating a barrier to entry for new and young farmers. At the 2024 Land Investment Expo in Des Moines, Iowa, Robert Bonney, the USDA Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, spoke on the importance of the next generation. He says there's a land access program worth $300 million to help out, but access requires creativity. About how we use our loans and guaranteed loans to support particularly young beginning farmers and ranchers. We think there are uh, big opportunities there. We're looking at ways that we can improve the servicing around our loans, that we can expand the amount we're able to loan, that we can streamline it, make it easier for folks to get in. I talked about streamlining on the uh, conservation side. And we'll be out uh, uh, this year with some changes to the loan program that we think will, uh, will enhance this substantially. Bonnie adds farmland access is an issue that should be talked about within the context of a farm bill. Rising land values are, are making it harder, particularly for uh, young folks to, to get into agriculture and for families to justify staying in. So I think lots of opportunities here in our existing programs. But it it ought to be a subject that Congress thinks about in the context of the Farm Bill as well. Obviously, we weren't able to get a Farm Bill in 2023. We'll see about 2024. Outside of land access, Bonnie praised conservation efforts. He says farmers deserve more credit. I think the environmental community doesn't appreciate the depth of the commitment to stewardship in our, our private landowners and our farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners. And we ought to develop policies that take advantage of that, that tap into that. It's an enormous resource. Um, we've got a number of, of examples across the country, whether it be wildlife conservation or others, where, uh, where private working lands are making the difference. And we need to do a better job as we think about environment and conservation of tapping into that and figuring out how we do a better job as the federal government in working with farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners to make that happen. Bonnie adds nothing in agriculture can be accomplished alone. So as we think about what we can do in USDA on all types of these things, we recognize we've got a We've got to partner with folks out in the countryside, whether it's around our conservation efforts, crop insurance, 
what we do. So um, that's a really important piece. Again, Robert Bonney, USDA Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, speaking at the 2024 Land Investment Expo. Reporting from Des Moines, Iowa, I'm David Geiger. USDA's first State Stories Report of 2024 provided a snapshot of winter wheat conditions across reporting states in the final months of 2023. Rod Bain reports. USDA reporting of winter wheat crop conditions nationwide is not as comprehensive in the winter months due to dormancy conditions and lack of reporting by states of other major crops. However, a glimpse of how winter wheat is doing in reporting states can be captured via the National Agricultural Statistics Service's State Stories Report, which is issued monthly from late December to late March. What does the first State Stories Report for this winter indicate about winter wheat condition? USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey starts with the nation's largest winter wheat production state. Kansas. With some rain and snow coming to the crop, we have seen the condition improve now to just 21% very poor to poor, an 11-point improvement over the last five weeks. At the same time, winter wheat in Kansas rated good to excellent, increased 11 percentage points from 32 to 43%. There was also improvement noted in Kansas's Southern Plains neighbor. Oklahoma. The big jump there was actually in the good to excellent categories. However, turning to the northern plains. We've had a very interesting winter. It has been warm. It has been rather dry. And we've seen a bit of erosion of the condition there. Montana winter wheat rated good to excellent, dropping 15 percentage points over the last five weeks from 58 to 43 percent good to excellent. At the same time, winter wheat in Montana rated very poor to poor has jumped from 5 to 21 percent. A look at the soft red winter wheat crop, particularly within the lower Midwest, indicates it's more of a subtle drop in condition there. We're mostly seeing an erosion on the higher end categories, your good to excellent ratings, and it has been a bit dry. You have to consider that this time of year when the crop's dormant, sometimes the crop just doesn't look as good as you move through winter. There's certainly plenty of opportunity for this lower Midwestern winter wheat crop to rebound come spring, especially if we get some improved moisture. Decreases in winter wheat crop condition include the good to excellent ratings dropping 17% Percentage points in Illinois from 72 to 55 percent, good to excellent. We've also seen some decreases in condition in other lower Midwestern states, including Ohio, going from 80 percent good to excellent at the end of November to an end of December reading of 71 percent good to excellent. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Farmers and football players can both be challenged by having to deal with terrible weather. This weekend's playoff games could demonstrate that point. Gary Crawford has more. Football players and farmers have one thing in common. No matter what the weather, everybody's going out there and trying to do their best, no matter what the conditions are. And Ag Department meteorologist Brad Rippey says conditions are going to be nasty for two of this coming weekend's playoff games. First on Sunday, the Steelers at Buffalo, where the cold winds will be howling and... There is the potential we could see disruptive snowfall temperatures in the 20s at game time, and we could see those wind gusts 20 to 40 miles per hour. But for even worse conditions, it's the Saturday night game, the warm weather Dolphins at the cold weather Kansas City Chiefs, and we do mean cold. You're talking single digit temperatures, so you're going to see a lot of people sitting on those heated seats on the sidelines with the hand warmers and everything else trying to stay warm when it's five or six or seven degrees. So conditions for two of this weekend's six games will be tough. Just the way they should be for football. 
But of course, Brad's going to be watching from his nice cozy den. Mm -hmm. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's today's agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.